Welcome back to Reality Asserts Itself on the Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay, and we're continuing our discussion about U.S. policy towards Iran with Trita Parsi, who joins us again in the studio. Trita is founder and president of the National Iranian American Council, and his most recent book is Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. So as I said at the end of the last segment, we're going to focus a bit on uh, Israel's role in all this. There's a big campaign on now. Uh, Steve Bannon has been fired. Um, he's gone back to be executive chairman of Breitbart. Um, Breitbart is now one of the largest news sites in the world, is waging a big campaign against McMaster, a national security advisor, and on the basis that he's not uh, militant enough in being pro-Israel. And he also isn't militant enough, and be militant enough about the uh, getting rid of the Iran agreement, the nuclear agreement and such. Um, it's, uh, while Bannon's gone, it seems like Trump shares those views, and he's certainly very close to the Saudis, which certainly shares those views, uh, and, and seems, so does Israel. Well, what does Israel really want? There's, there's been some theory that Netanyahu has a lot of anti-Iranian rhetoric as existential threat, that, but it's more for domestic political consumption. Or, or does he really want the United States to go after in a, in a, in a far more aggressive way and really go after Iran? I think those two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Uh, Iran has been a very valuable domestic political card uh, for Netanyahu. Uh, there is really no opposition to Netanyahu within the Knesset or within other parties in Israel in which they're taking a dramatically different role position on Iran. At best, they would be criticizing Netanyahu for say, and arguing that he has been reckless in the way that he's handled the issue because he got himself into too much tensions with the Barack Obama administration. But to fundamentally disagree with uh, Netanyahu's position on Iran, uh, you don't find that within the political establishment in Israel. Um, so, in spite of the fact how many former intelligence leaders, Israeli leaders, have said Iran's not an existential threat. It's, absolutely. Spite when it comes to the security establishment, it's one thing. When it comes to the political establishment, it's a very different picture. But they do all tend to agree that the deal, at, at the end of the day, whether they agree or not, whether it's good on the nuclear front, there is an agreement uh, that it is unleashing Iran further in their view, that it is ultimately not helpful for the Israelis that the United States would adopt uh, a position of seeking further negotiations with Iran on non-nuclear issues to essentially accept Iran as a regional power. That is not something that is particularly proper in Israel and certainly not in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but there are things that are really fascinating with the way that Netanyahu handled this whole thing. He committed numerous mistakes. One of the first and obvious mistakes is that he really pushed the idea that this is an existential threat and then combined that with demanding very, very unrealistic um, uh, demands of the United States in any negotiation. Well, if you pursue positions on the nuclear talks that essentially render them impossible to succeed, and at the same time you say that nuclear Iran is an existential threat, you're essentially designing a chessboard that will make a U.S. confrontation with Iran inevitable, or at a minimum, make a American action on Iran inevitable, because Netanyahu essentially eliminated the status quo option, the idea that the U.S. could just contain the nuclear program and then kick the can down the road and let it be the headache of the next administration. What Netanyahu miscalculated, however, is that yes, by eliminating the status quo option, you're forcing the United States to take action. But take action does not automatically mean military action. 
it could also mean diplomatic action. And that's the route the Obama administration went, much to Netanyahu's frustration. But had it not been for him eliminating the status quo option, there are good chances that the United States, even under Obama, would not have pursued these negotiations with the same intensity. It was precisely because of the threat that if we don't resolve this issue, we will end up either accepting a nuclear fait accompli in Iran or going to war. So Netanyahu, unfortunately, from his perspective, actually pushed the United States in the direction that he didn't want to. But moreover, there was actually something even easier Netanyahu could have done to kill the deal. Instead of going out there and saying that this deal will pave Iran's way to a nuclear weapon and, and blasting the United States every time uh, the negotiations were extended, all he could have done that would have been far more effective in killing the deal was to go out and say, this is a fantastic deal. This is great for Israel and this is Iran's ultimate defeat. That would have created massive difficulties for the Iranian negotiating team. They had no problems dealing with Netanyahu's criticism and saying, oh, this is so good for Iran. They actually used that to silence their critics inside of Iran, the hardliners. But if Netanyahu had come out and hugged the deal, it would have created so much difficulty, the Iranian foreign minister told me himself that he would have to pull out of the deal, out of the negotiations. The existence of Hezbollah in Lebanon to have a military force that actually defeated the Israelis once and, and is on the border. And, and, and it, I can't see, I mean, I've been there, I've talked to Hezbollah. I do not see how Hezbollah is any kind of a threat to Israel's existence. Hezbollah is not going to go on the offensive against such an, the Israeli military. But they don't like the fact that there's a territory there with a military they can't dominate. Um, is that not one of the most important factors in terms of why Israel is so antagonistic to Iran? Uh, it certainly is one very, very important factor. The Iranians have, despite the fact that they don't have nuclear weapons, they nevertheless have a very strong deterrence against Israel, which does have nuclear weapons. And that is primarily through Hezbollah. We saw that in 2006, that despite Israel's complete military superiority, it still actually could not defeat uh, Hezbollah after 34 days of warfare, including a land invasion of southern Lebanon. That really proved the, the, the value to the Iranians that Hezbollah um, uh, gave them by being able to be uh, such a strong um, deterrence against Israel. So what this is, is not about existential issues. It is about that pre-2003, Israel enjoyed a very strong maneuverability in the region, uh, the Iranians were checkmated by Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan. The U.S. was imposing an order in the region based on Iraq and Iran's isolation. All of that went up in the air because of the invasion of Iraq and because of the failure of the United States in Iraq. And the Israelis have been desperate in trying to push the United States to re-establish the pre-2003 status quo. And it's just not possible any longer. The United States neither has the capacity to do so, and even if it did, it's not clear whether that would be sustainable or whether that really would be valuable. But it's not difficult to understand the desire from the Israeli side, and particularly from the Saudi side. If you could have an option of having a superpower essentially create stability for you and you living safely under their umbrella, enjoying the type of maneuverability that your own power never would allow you to do, it's not unreasonable that one would pursue that option. But the United States increasingly cannot afford to provide that umbrella, and it increasingly does not make sense for the United States from a global perspective to put so much focus on the Middle East and so little focus Again, in Asia. Again, a section of the foreign a policy. A section. But yeah. I, I would still of argue... the foreign policy establishment think this way, but, but 
not the Cheney-esque view of the world. Certainly. And I think certainly. these guys, Trump guys, are picking up where Cheney left off. Trump himself, I frankly don't think, understands any of this. I don't have seen any indication that he has any understanding of geopolitics. But definitely within the circle of people around him, you have people who uh, would be more neoconservative. But there's other elements as well. A lot of the people, particularly military people that have been in the NSC, whether before or after McMaster, had some of their formative years either in Afghanistan or in Iraq. They strongly feel that both Bush and Obama were not forceful enough against the Iranians. They feel that if the United States had used more force, the Iranians would have backed down. And their argument is that there is the possibility and there's a value for a small war with the Iranians. And that if the United States just really shows its military superiority, the Iranians will back These down. are the John Boltons of the world. Not just, no, Bolton would probably be more to the right. These are people that we otherwise would not necessarily say are in the Bannon or Gorka category, but nevertheless feel strongly about this. Uh, because well, this Washington Post editorial I, I read exactly. this earlier, is, this is much they're more practically of a advocating view. that. Yeah, it's much yeah. more of a centrist view rather than a neoconservative view. I personally don't think it will work. I don't see any historic examples in which the United States uh, taking strong military action, even if in a contained way, actually dramatically transformed the U.S.-Iran rivalry or, uh, or uh, enmity. Rather, what it tended to do is to get the Iranians to back off from one specific arena, only to ramp things up in a different arena. They're fighting an asymmetric uh, uh, struggle against a much more powerful um, uh, enemy, the United States. So the idea that there could be a small contained war, I think, is quite foolish. But right now, it doesn't seem as if there are any people around Trump that would explain to him that if you take these various actions against the nuclear deal, it could lead to a military confrontation, whether big or small. The circle of people around him, even with Bannon and others gone, seem to only stretch itself from people who say, let's just kill this deal right away and confront the Iranians very aggressively in the region, to those who say, Let's wait a little bit. Let's destroy, destroy this deal in a more sophisticated way so that we can shift the blame onto the Iranians. But really, we don't see anyone that is telling Trump, this deal is working. This deal is making sure that there isn't any uh, path for Iran to go for a nuclear weapon. And that's a very, very positive thing. Even if there may be people in the administration that actually believe that and feel that, I doubt that they see any value for them to raise that point with Trump now when he seems to have his mind so set when it comes to destroying the deal because it's not so much whether the deal works or not, it's about the fact that this is Obama's deal and he's just obsessively going against everything Obama achieved. And there's some underlying forces here. Uh, almost war is extremely profitable. Arms sales are going through the roof. I mean, you can't even talk about it. The military budget, uh, Trump gave, wanted 54 billion and the uh, military industrial complex complained it wasn't enough. In fact, it wasn't that much more, they said, than Obama was promising. And Congress is upping it by another 15, 20 billion dollars. Uh, the, the, the volatility is wonderful if they can really get something started with Iran. What happens to the price of oil is likely to go up. Uh, at least for a while. Uh, volatility is great if you're in the fossil fuel sector. It's great. It's even great in the finance sector if you know it's coming because you can play it. And of course, uh, the military industrial complex is loving every minute of this. Um, you know, I, I, we interview Larry Wilkerson a lot, and he has said, do not underestimate how such banal motivations mm. 
drive foreign policy, like just pure money making. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of geopolitical thinkers and there's a lot of planning about China and about global strategy. But a lot of decisions are just made on how much money will this make us this week, next week. I think in particular with this administration, that latter component is much greater. I think we have seen that there's been a whole set of various influencers when it comes to decisions of this kind. And geopolitical considerations are one, perhaps the main ones under normal circumstances, but there are other considerations as well. Right now in an administration in which the president himself doesn't seem to understand the even one-on-one -on -one geopolitics, to others who seem to be rather obsessed with revenge against Iran, and we see that particularly in some of the folks in the NSC, um, it becomes much easier for these other types of considerations to take a much greater uh, uh, space in the decision-making process than, than the pure geopolitical considerations. If it's strictly from ge pure geopolitical considerations, it is very difficult to understand the idea that Trump would go to Riyadh so early in his presidency, in fact, his first foreign trip, hug the Saudis without reservation, tell them we're not here to criticize, and then after that fly to Brussels and absolutely have no inhibitions in criticizing America's uh, European allies, particularly Germany. Where is the geopolitical rationale for doing something like Even that? Even in their own context, when they say the greatest threat is Iranian terrorism and then you go hug the Saudis. But if you really just had a geopolitical view of the world, and in theory, if you're a hegemon, your real problem is China, then what you really do, it seems to me, is you actually bring Iran in further into global capitalism. It is a capitalist uh, economy. The, uh, many of the uh, people that are leading the theocracy are multimillionaires and even billionaires. Uh, many of them, I don't know how it is now, but pre-sanctions, they were invested in major hotel chains. I mean, they're all involved in, in global capitalism. And uh, I would think their wealth is as important to them as the theocracy is, but they'd be happy to be part of global capitalism. And if you really had this long-term play, it seems to me that's the long-term play, which means you would treat Iran more or less the same way you treat the Saudis. In fact, you'd even play them off against each other a bit, which is kind of what Obama was heading yeah. towards. If you, but, but a short-term play is make money fast, sell arms, get the price of oil up because of volatility. Uh, it seems to me that's the division here. Where I would slightly disagree with you is that the short-term play would still not be geopolitical. The short-term play would just be profiteering. There is no short-term geopolitical no, gain right. from that, doing any of that. Yeah. Uh, it's just completely divorced from geopolitical considerations. And let's just say when we're talking about this, we're talking about how many thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives would be lost in what looks like what's coming. How many American lives, and I'm talking about lives of everyone who lives there, thousands of American lives, if they go back Iraq style again. I mean, you know, they, they talk about blood and treasure. We're talking about real people in, in yeah. the tens of thousands are going to be dying here, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, and, and this is why I, I find it so absurd. I mean, I had written the book and was essentially ready when the elections happened. Uh, and Trump won. I had to rewrite the last chapter. And I think he actually made the, the idea, the title of the book, more relevant. Because what this deal did is it did not lose Iran as an enemy. It did not make Iran an ally. But it opened up the path for a, a broader U.S.-Iran rapprochement. It's that path that Trump very quickly closed by going to Riyadh and once again calling for Iran's isolation in the region, returning back 
to the posture of the United States without being able to pursue it effectively, but the posture pre-2003. So by closing that path, he also opened up the path once again for a potential U.S.-Iran war. And having seen this remarkable achievement, I mean, remember, the Russians and the Americans were working in tandem with each other very effectively in order to resolve this nuclear issue peacefully in the midst of the Ukraine crisis. The degree of discipline that all parties showed in order to get this one resolved is something that we really should look, take a close look at uh, and really appreciate because this is the path we should pursue in the future in order to create a more stable world. But you're quite right. A more stable world is not necessarily in the cards or in the interest of those who are looking for short-term profiteering. And, and I think this also connects to a fight within the Democratic Party. Because Obama, uh, when, when Obama was elected, I said, I only have one hope for Obama, because I didn't have any, I didn't drink the Kool-Aid, and I didn't think he was going to do anything significant, and it didn't surprise me at all that his economic team was from Wall Street, and so on, and so on. My one hope was the Iran deal. I said, this guy, I think, after listening to him during the campaign, he actually might have a rational policy towards Iran. And in the end, he did. Um, but that did not reflect much of the leadership of the Democratic Party. Certainly not Chuck, Chuck Schumer, as you say, who didn't even support, support the deal. Uh, Hillary Clinton seemed, she liked sort of taking credit for it, but it wasn't clear what well, she... she only took credit for the sanctions because that's the coercive elements of it that she's right. quite excited yeah, about. She forced it because yeah. of the sanctions. I mean, these secret negotiations in Oman were essentially started by John Kerry as, as uh, at the time, then uh, foreign relations, um, Senate foreign relations chairman. Uh, and Hillary, as well as many of the other people in the NSC that ended up not being in Obama too, were very skeptical. They didn't oppose it necessarily, but they were very, very skeptical. When Rouhani won in 2013, Congress came out immediately after and imposed new sanctions on Iran. A lot of members of Congress voted against that were very upset because they felt like, well, we actually have a very interesting development and our first response is to impose sanctions. Hillary Clinton was out of office then, but she issued a press release, if I'm not mistaken, supporting Congress and imposing more sanctions. Well, we just, just had this recent vote on sanctions where they had one bill with sanctions against Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Uh, but only two, uh, in the vote I saw, I think there was a subsequent vote, but the vote, the first vote on this bill, only two senators voted against it, and that was Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul. Yeah. And Sanders voted against it because he said this can help to weaken and undo the Iran deal. But the entire Democratic Party senators supported well, this was the a sanctions. very clever move by Chuck Schumer because this was originally an Iran sanctions bill. It ran into trouble because there was at least a bit of a resistance on the Democratic side. Uh, and many members of the negotiating team under Obama came out against the deal, very explicitly explaining how this would end up killing the deal unless it was changed. Even after it was changed, it was still difficult. But by combining it with Russia sanctions, Chuck Schumer made a very clever move. He made it very difficult for Democrats to vote against it, mindful of uh, the other aspects of U.S.-Russian relationship and the elections, etc. The only one who didn't, of course, is Bernie Sanders, and he took took a lot of heat from a lot of uh, folks in the Clinton camp. Which means that this fight within the Democratic Party, the Sanders-esque fight, is a very critical piece of whether or not America goes to war with Iran, uh, because given the Chuck Schumer wing of the party, which is the dominant wing of the Democratic Party, uh, it's the one thing that they would love Trump to do, and they'll be there cheering for him. Had it not been for President Obama, and his willingness to take risks on some of these matters, there would not have been a nuclear deal. 
we would probably be at some form of a confrontation with Iran right now. There would never have been the Cuba deal that was all done in secret until it was around. It takes an amount of courage to be willing to try some of these things. They are far more costly politically than pursuing confrontation or pursuing status quo. Because even though confrontation can be much more disastrous for the country as a whole, politically, it's oftentimes less costly. Just turn on any other mainstream TV channel right now. Half of the people that are the architects of the Iraq war are still employed. They're still giving commentary as if they know that much about foreign policy. And it's never raised that, you know, you actually committed some of the biggest mistakes, strategic mistakes of the United States while you were in the Bush administration. It's rarely raised. So the political cost of pursuing confrontation is very little. And it took someone like Obama to be willing to take the risk for peacemaking. And the horrible irony of this mm. is that Obama's still leading the charge against the Sander forces in the party. When they had the fight over who was going to be chair of the DNC, apparently Obama was actually working the phones to support corporate Democrats, not just at the DNC, but in California and other places. Yeah, that's He's about, actually supporting the people yeah, that's that oppose his own foreign policy. Because yeah. in the end, it's about class, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's about many other things. I, I doubt that foreign policy is a particularly important element when it comes to that fight. Uh, or uh, the, the fact that uh, it's not obviously, uh, which Obama is really a pity, given it's war and peace. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that again, the, prior to this, the progressives in the Democratic Party could criticize the Iraq deal. Many of them voted against the Iraq deal. They were on the right side of that vote in, in the way that many prominent Democrats were not. But they never really had a successful example for themselves to point to to say. We're not just against this approach that Bush pursued, we're in favor of this approach because we can now show you that it worked. The Iran deal gave them that example of saying, this is actually what a progressive foreign policy could look like. Reasonable negotiations, measured language, build up a coalition with allies, et cetera, and then pursue diplomacy in an actually genuine way, rather than having diplomacy only be to go in every once in a while and check in with the counterpart to see, are you willing to capitulate now or not? This is actually genuine in which the U.S. gave painful concessions to the Iranians in order to get the Iranians to give painful concessions to the U.S. It worked. We have a blueprint, and it should be put to use much more often. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We are going to pick up our discussion uh, when we can get treated back to Baltimore again. Uh, so for now, that's the end of the series, but it's not the end end of the series. And we also haven't even gotten into Trita's story yet. So, so we're, we're going to get Trita back as soon as we can. So one more time, thanks very much for joining us on Reality Asserts Itself. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on The Real News Network.